on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. This is June 15th, 2021. I'm Eric Scorsoni, your co-host, and with me is Sarah Klammer. How are you, Sarah? I'm doing great. How about you, Eric? I'm very good. Just covering some news first from the Heterox News site. We have some conferences coming up. The second MMT European Conference is going to be in September 2021. That is online, and they're still taking abstracts for that. Also, we have the 24th European Society of the History of Economic Thought. That's going to be a hybrid conference. And so that is something coming up as well. And then, of course, we have the Association for Evolutionary Economics Conference that will be at the ASSA meetings in January of 2022. And as far as we know, those are going to be in person. So lots of good things coming up. Today, we have a great podcast with Bill Waller from Hobart and William Smith Colleges, Department of Economics. Bill is also the editor of the Journal of Economic Issues. Sarah, what are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, so today we talk about some of Waller's history, which is heavily tied into the the Blenian Arizian tradition. And we also talk about his philosophy as the editor of the JEI and his book. And then we end with a little bit of his thoughts on the way forward for institutional economists. Great, thank you. So again, enjoy episode two, season one of the Legal Economic Nexus podcast with Bill Waller. Thanks. All right. So are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. Okay. So I just, you know, thought it'd be nice if you could tell us a little bit about how you ended up becoming an institutional economist. Okay. I started my college education at Wayne State University in Detroit, where I grew up on a state scholarship and I took an economics class and it was horrible. And so I decided I would never study economics. On the recommendation of one of my high school friends, I transferred to Western Michigan University. He had been there for a year and he recommended that I take economics through the Honors College. And uh, I told him, no, that wasn't going to happen. And he said, no, really, this will be different. There's this guy, uh, Professor Lewis Junker, who does a great job teaching the course for the Honors College. And it's very different. So I uh, signed up for the course and uh, it was very different from my experience of principles of microeconomics. First of all, there are only about 15 students in the class. And it was really a free-flowing discussion of economics, social theory, philosophy, history of technology, you know, all sorts of things that was intriguing. And then that became clear to me that there were different ways of doing economics. So I completed the principal sequence with Lou, and then he became my advisor and he supervised my master's degree. Lou was a student of JFAG Foster, who was a student of Clarence Ayers. So my exposure to institutional economics sort of worked with Foster's vision of economic, institutional economics and worked backwards. After finishing my master's with Lou Junker, I went to the University of New Mexico where I worked with David Hamilton, 
for four years, who again was a student of theirs. And that's really where my research interests in institutional economics took off. An amazing thing happened. I, my first, David Hamilton had me do two things, sign up for an independent study, and he would just give me a list of books I had to go read and write some kind of paper. But I also took his institutional economics class. And something struck me immediately that his interpretation of institutional economics and the Arizian tradition did not match up with the version that Lou Junker taught me through, you know, Fag Foster. And so I wrote a term paper for David Hamilton called The Evolution of the Veblenian Dichotomy. And uh, that sort of got me in trouble. So, yeah. So was it, it, it intentional it, to follow the heirs tradition kind of to New Mexico? Uh, that? that was the plan, was to follow through on the Arizian tradition. And I, it's something that I've continued to write about, but actually... Um, has increasingly had less and less to do with my work. Yeah. Some of the important early influences beyond uh, Professor Junker and, and, and Dave Hamilton, Lou Junker died very young, but as I went to the Western Social Sciences one year, I think it was 1978, and um, that's where a lot of the Western institutionalists had their annual meetings and what would become later AFIT. And I was introduced to Mark Toole and Dale Bush, and I met Jay Fag Foster and, and Gladys Foster, who became a close friend. So when Lou passed away, they sort of all took a very strong interest in my career. Another important influence was Warren Samuels, because as a graduate student submitting a term paper to the JEI, the eventual paper had a great deal to do with his mentoring patients, choice of referees, and basically helping me through that process to learn how to write journal articles. So those, oh, and two other people, of course, Ann Mayhew and Terry Neal, Walter Neal, were incredibly important in supporting me early in my career. I think that follows pretty naturally, like, the, we haven't really explored yet on the podcast the basics of the Veblenian dichotomy or the ceremony instrumental split and could you give us a sense of that and how you how you talked about how it evolved and why that's an important concept for institutional economics generally speaking in the Veblenaires tradition there's they identify the beginning of the dichotomy with Veblen's tendency to construct categories like business and industry in the theory of business enterprise or serviceability and waste in the theory of the leisure class as a way of analyzing society. But the ceremonial and instrumental terminology, which does come from Veblen, really was put into uh, the Veblen heirs tradition by heirs. And he had a very different notion than Veblen's with regard to this. By 1936, I think it was, Ayers argued that ceremonial aspects of behavior, or actually ceremonial processes, were a separate cultural process independent from what he viewed as the technological process, which he would eventually call the instrumental process. And he literally said, these are two cultural processes that occur in every culture 
and our fundamental to understanding how institutions evolve and human behavior goes forward. Um, he had abandoned instincts in 1921, so he had shut that part of Veblen out. He was focused on a very narrow band. He changed the definition of institutions from the interwar institutionalists by separating those two aspects. And, and he really meant they were separate. And, and so he constructed the framework of the Veblenian dichotomy as was received by his students. And he, he gave Dewey some credit for it, but um, his immersion in, in the history of technology really gave it a much stronger technological deterministic sense than what Dewey in, involved. I really think Foster is very important in the development of it, I think in, in many ways it allowed the Feblinian dichotomy to become more useful, and I'll explain that in a bit. Um, but first of all, he restored the notion of institutions to the interwar institutionalists, where institutions could both be constraining on behavior, but also could promote economic behavior, which heirs precluded. And he also began to treat ceremonial and instrumental processes as aspects of an integrated behavior. So the behave, all behavior had both ceremonial and instrumental aspects. And following Aristotle, that the, the key to progress is, you know, increasing the significance of the instrumental aspects of behavior, overcoming the barrier that ceremonial aspects of behavior contributed, and he also included Ayer's instrumental value theory. Veblen's value theory is very vague and, and particular. Ayer's adopted Dewey's instrumental value theory out of, you know, Dewey's pragmatism. And both Ayer's and, and Foster even more strongly argued that instrumental valuation as the social valuation principle was inevitable right, that from an evolutionary perspective, societies that did not to some degree adopt, adopt instrumental reasoning and instrumental valuation wouldn't succeed evolutionarily. Their ceremonial aspects behavior would overcome them. All of the Arisians thought of this as a methodological construction based on Ayers's theoretical formulation. Over time and over my career, I began to notice that not very many people used it. And so I've come to think that it's more like, it's more of a method. You know, it's an intellectual sorting device. Social structures and cultural structures are so complex. Everything affects everything. So you have to begin to sort through this activity and behavior and these institutions and make some sense of them. And as a first stab at doing that, I think the Veblenian dichotomy retains some use. I think probably the article I wrote that used it the most is called Kicking Them While They're Down, which is on a bankruptcy law reform probably about 20 years ago. And I used it but it, it actually, as I discussed the, the intricacies of bankruptcy law reform, the Veblenian dichotomy disappears because it's really about the particulars 
of a historical piece of legislation and the history of bankruptcy. So I still use it as a sorting device and I teach my students to use it as like the first step, but it's one among many methods I use. Um, I've always been very intrigued by Bill Duggar's work on power that came out in 1980, which work eventually evolved into his corporate hegemony work, where he envisioned society as clusters of institutions, each with their own purpose, each with their own internal status system, each with their own values, each with their own techniques, and then, you know, looking at how they interact one with one another. And I think there are a lot of other things that are good methods at that point, but don't rise to methodology. So that's where I'm, I'm currently with, and that's sort of the history of how I got there. Great. Thank you. I know you've written about radical institutionalism yeah. and how that uh, was a break from the Arizian foundations. I mean, is that pretty similar to what we're discussing here in terms of, do you still find that term relevant today, the radical institutionalist way of thinking, or has your thinking evolved on that as well? Well, in the Veblen Ayers tradition, I think the radical institutionalists won the battle and, and that most of the Western cactus branch of institutionalists would probably agree with Duggar and my characterization of radical institutionalism. There was a strong emphasis from the 1950s, obviously, into when I came in in the 1970s and 80s to reject anything but incremental evolutionary change and to ignore anything having to do with Marxism and ignoring the facts that Marxism was evolving as well at that period of time. And so I think that was the other bit that, that really was different, a movement away from the incrementalism, not denying that incrementalism might be effective in social change, but that sometimes you encounter something where larger scale transformation is necessary. And I don't know why that evolved into the institutionalist tradition. Now, obviously, the commons tradition was very much focused on policy at the time the, the common scholars were working, right up through Harry Trebing and Warren Samuels from and all the interwar followers of commons. They're always focusing on particular policy problems. And in that case, I think an incremental approach makes some sort of sense. In your 2015 Veblen Commons speech, you talked about an age of unreason. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that's been amplified since 2015? And what do you oh, think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in 1974, neoliberalism was just, you know, beginning to show its ugly little head in American politics, um, but wasn't quite the dominant or central ideology in our society. And there is a whole level of irrationality uh, with neoliberalism and assuming that human behavior is all constructed around market-oriented behavior and incentives. Um, but we also, you know, experienced the unreasonable society in the 1930s and early 40s, where fascism gained hold and um, what we would think of as either scientific reasoning or uh, liberal political reasoning or <laughs> anything particularly fact-based uh, had disappeared for a period of time and recovering it was very difficult. And I could see us moving in a direction that I was uncomfortable with. And one of the things that really struck me 
And the reason I first got started on that is um, I was invited by Baldwin Ransom and uh, Gladys Foster to participate in a panel. And I was looking at some of Foster's earlier and less more obscure writings. And I realized he was talking about some of this as well in terms of the earlier experience. And so as I got more depressed about the direction we were going politically and economically, that resonated with me. And I thought it was worthwhile to raise that alarm in 2015. Um, I would, even then I would not have predicted what happened in 2016 or the subsequent four years. I mean, so the oh alarm is still ringing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're past the alarm. You know, it's like about <laughs> right. you know, putting out the fire. Um, what do you yeah. think our role as institutional economists is in countering kind of what's going on? Yeah, I think we have a lot to say about that by virtue of the strong emphasis on experimentation, pluralism empiricism in terms of not demonstrating our beliefs, but in terms of trying to solve social problems. And I think we have to make those kinds of arguments, identifying problems, identifying potential solutions, and approaching those with good empirical information, but also with some sense of humility, which seems to me to be utterly lacking in the economics profession. So do you think institutional econ in general is a little bit more well positioned to kind of start tackling some of these issues than the mainstream economics profession as a whole? In terms of our economics, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think we can we can ground our analyses in social institutions in a problem solving context without having to desperately hold on to a market ideology, which we have to insert into everything. I think a good friend of mine from early in my career, Jerry Newsom, who was an institutional economist and then went from the academy and then did his whole career at the EPA and then went back to teaching. When he was at the EPA, he said, um, mainstream economists, and this is before the in the late, late 70s, early 80s, mainstream economists have, have no role at the EPA because all the research was interdisciplinary and they would come in and start talking about only market solutions. And he said, rarely did it pass the laugh test, which meant that they, they left, you know, and that the people who were doing the analysis there were in fact problem-solving institutionalists looking for policies that would actually address the environment, which is why, of course, Reagan and now Trump has tried to shut down any work they do. The other thing he said is in their meetings, in these interdisciplinary meetings, they didn't need to have a mainstream economist because they could simply bring in a parrot that said free the market, and that would take care of that part of the conversation. You know, so, so I think in government, in applied economists and, and economists who work in interdisciplinary ways are effectively usually doing some form of institutional analysis. That's always been there as an undercurrent. That's how government functions. And, and people who work for firms, they focus on the firm's problems, but they're not terribly ideological. And though their goals are a whole lot clearer, 
so, so that, yeah, there's always been a role for institutional economics and it's always been submerged where it's really totally absent is largely in the economy, you know, I, I, in the economics profession academically is what I refer to. But you see, you know, um, I've recently read Paul Krugman's book of columns, you know, Fighting with Zombies. And there's a lot of institutional economics in there that, that just doesn't gel with the mainstream economics he's cramming in there. So, you know, sensible people looking at real problems using real information tend to be doing some version of institutional economics and being a mainstream economist just holds you back. And I've been very fortunate to be in departments where either the whole department was interdisciplinary or very pluralist. And so the conversations we have avoid all of those that I experienced in graduate school and <laughs> in other environments. So I've been very happy with that. But I think, I think all of it, everything is, all the pieces are there. Um, but as a society and as a culture, we need to decide to use them. And I don't know how to overcome the entrenched ideological positions that people are in. I grew up in Detroit, in the Detroit metropolitan area, literally um, Macomb County, which is the, the uh, bellwether of Reagan Democrats, you know, and uh, I understand that, that their ideological tie to anyone who will bring back what they viewed as the golden age of capitalism from 1945 to 1972. Um, they were the aristocracy of the working class because of unions and, and discrimination and keeping women out of the workforce. But, but they actually had a pretty good, you know, they had an increasing standard of living. And after the Arab oil embargo and deindustrialization, the emergence of neoliberalism, they lost that, they lost hope. And anybody who promises them any panacea can manipulate them politically, you know? And it's very hard to tell people that, you know, that golden age that, that they believe, you know, they never experienced it. Maybe their grandparents did. They believe they're entitled to that. And anybody who promises it to them will, they will support. And, you know, realistically, as an evolutionary economist, we're never going back there. Even if manufacturing came back to the United States, it wouldn't resemble the manufacturing that was taking place in, you know, the mid-1970s when I was working for General Motors for a while. You know, that, that kind of manufacturing is never coming back. If manufacturing comes back, it's going to look very different. And it's going to take place in the context probably of some sort of version of a neoliberal economy. It's not going to provide the path to the middle class that, that the uh, unions were able to do, and it will have to be more inclusive. So the return to a golden age is a theme that has motivated people throughout human history. And also the whole narrative that Jamie Galbraith talks about, you know, normalcy, the return to normal. We're hearing that narrative now, you know, when are we going to get back to normal? Never. It's going to be something new. And, you know, you better be flexible and, you know, there's a lot I want to get back. But, you know, the way we're talking right now is the way I'll be talking to my students for the rest of my career. You know, I have health issues. I'm not getting in my six foot office with a bunch of students and a whiteboard when I can do this. It's just not going to happen. So we're, ne we're never going to get back to the way we were. Um, whatever emerges is going to be different. And that's really hard for people.
Nobody wants to go through that. Well, an institutional econ certainly, I do feel, has some of that built-in flexibility towards social change. So, yeah. yeah, I want to ask you something. So, I want to quote you something and see if you would agree with me. This is um, kind of a good way of thinking about institutional economics. It's from the book you recommended in one of your articles from 2002, uh, "Living Wage, Equal Wage," and and the authors write that write this. However, associating gender and race ethnicity solely with discriminatory processes assumes that the basic wage determination model remains unchanged. Discrimination becomes a special case of market failure. In contrast, the underpinning of our approach is the belief that gendered relations in society have fundamental effects on wages as well as other economic outcomes. I'm just curious if you would agree that that's when students and others are, what is this institutional economics? I felt like that was a good quote to say, it is going beyond just your neoclassical model. It's doing something different, really. Is that, would you agree that's a good statement to how maybe we think about some of this? Absolutely. And uh, that that's from Deb Feigert and Marilyn Powers and uh, Ellen Mutari. I was rereading a lot of Deb Feigert in particular's work recently for a number of reasons. And, and she has uh, her presidential address in the review of social economy for the association of social economics expands on that phrase in a, in an extremely powerful way. And yeah, I think that's a good, yeah, that's what institutionalism is and should be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so let's switch a little gears here. We want to kind of explore one thing is obviously you're chief editor of the Journal of Economic Issues, uh, an important role, and kind of curious what your philosophy is and how and how your maybe your philosophies changed as editor of that journal. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense I approached it reluctantly. I think earlier in my career would have been a better time for me to do it. Maybe not. But I really wanted to see institutional economics expand in ways that was not happening in the Association for Evolutionary Economics meetings or the Association for Institutional Thought meetings, which are actually more pluralist. I thought there was a lot going on out there in economics that we wanted to talk about and we wanted institutionalists to talk about. For a long time, I thought feminist economics, by virtue of bringing all kinds of economists of every approach together based on the commonality of the, literally the assumption that gender was important, was very healthy. And a lot of the feminist economists I met from all over the world were doing what we would identify clearly as institutional economics. Prue Hyman, who is sort of the prominent and early feminist economist in New Zealand, was sitting in a session where Anne Mayhew and Janice Peterson and other institutionalists were talking about institutional economics. And she stood up and said, I've, you know, had my whole career in economics without ever knowing I was an institutional economist. You know, so I thought I wanted to reach out to that community. Uh, I think the uh, diversification, decolonization, which is a heavily female and, and a non-Anglo-American group of people, 
are talking about some really important issues in really important ways, and I wanted to bring them in. I wanted to reestablish the connection between the historical connection between post-Keynesian economics and institutional economics. Um, of course, you know, Jan Kregel, Hyman Minsky, Galbraith, that they were all AFI members and, and um, Alfred Eitner and uh, Nina Shapiro, their first articles appeared in the JEI. And even though there's the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics, I thought there was a good space for the JEI to continue to build the bridge that uh, there is between those two. Years and years ago, uh, Marc Lavoie, in his first edition of his textbook on post-Keynesian economics, the first textbook on post-Keynesian economics, and the first chapter said, you know, if you're really interested in the micro foundation of post-Keynesian economics, it is original institutional economics. And I think that's true still. I don't know if he does, but I do. And, and so I wanted to reestablish those ties. So when uh, Jeff Schneider approached me about taking on the editorship and I told him no, I those various constituencies in the big tent of institutionalism and two things, they all encouraged me to do it because they seemed to have some faith I would be open-minded. And uh, that, that was the foundation of my commitment to the JI, that things would have to connect to institutional economics, but they could be pretty tenuous connections. And uh, so last year I published a statement in the June issue about what my editorial intentions were and, and were becoming to be clear to people who are submitting. Uh, and, and this we get a tremendously diverse number of submissions. The JI is truly an international journal. And I would say the majority of public of articles published are not from Americans or original institutionalists, but people outside. We're getting a lot of interesting, you know, I, I'm, I always have an eye out for interesting empirical work not optimization models, but good statistical analyses that tell us something about the world to make sure they get included. But every day I'm learning something new doing this job. Um, it's fascinating. The hard part is when I read a really interesting paper and I can't find a way to get it in. Because you know? <laughs> sometimes you just read, you know, I got a little paper that was sort of applying, you know, Schrodinger's cat to economics. And it was just very clever, but it's like, we're probably not the audience for that. Though that, that one's going to haunt me for my whole time as editor, because I really like that paper, but I just couldn't see myself uh, doing it. And then I'm very dependent upon referees. I, I, I don't want me to be the gatekeeper. Anything that I think is tangentially related to institutional economics, I send to re referees. And I allow myself to be guided by their judgment when it's outside my particular area of expertise within institutional economics. And I keep trying to diversify the editorial board every year and bring in more and more people from different aspects of institutionalism so that I have a quick person I can go to and say, you know, take a look at this. Who should I send this to? Uh, and I'm really happy with the editorial board I have. And I, um, Sebastian Berger, I've kept on the board now. He's been on there like nine years, but, 
but he knows the European institutionalists like no one else. So, you know, I want to the Schrodinger's cat uh, get passed on to your editorial board or did you reject that? I rejected it, but it was the most heartfelt rejection letter I ever sent. I said, this is an excellent piece and it's, but you know, it just doesn't relate to what we do. And, you know, if there's any way I can help you find another venue, which I don't do for most of us rejections. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's nice to hear there are, you know, kind-hearted editors out there. I, most of them I meet are, but I think most of us are a little bit overwhelmed. Um, I'm reading over 550 papers a year now. Wow. And so many of them, the decision can be made very quickly because the name of the journal is the Journal of Economic Issues, and there's almost nothing that isn't an economic issue. So we get all kinds of, of uh, unusual things. But yeah, I, I, I really, my goal as editor is to take plausible work and, and do what Warren Samuels did for me, help the person work it through the process. And my favorite editors are the editors who sit down and write reports, not you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, because I can do that. But it's like, okay, here's how you can make this paperwork. And it's really fun when, you know, somebody, especially younger people are, are working through their first or second paper and, and needing, you know, to focus things. The other thing that's been great is because I went to all those constituencies and talked with them before taking the job, it they're more willing to to do refereeing for me. So, you know, I had a undergraduate student who wrote a paper on modern monetary theory and he didn't know it, but it was reviewed by Randy Ray and Stephanie Kelton, you know, and I, in what world does that happen? You know, And they, they worked with him for a year and a half and he's still plugging away. So that's great. You know, yeah. That's what I want the journal to be, what it was for me. Yeah. You mentioned in the, JFAC Foster lecture that you did recently at the University of Denver about a book you're working on. And I'm curious if you wanted to share any more about that book you're working on and the ideas behind it. Sure. It all came when I was doing the paper that's going to be in Charles Whalen's next book on institutional economics, A Reconsideration of Evelynian Dichotomy. One of the things that occurred to me was that the theory of human behavior in institutional economics has broken down with the elimination of instincts, which of course have been rehabilitated in evolutionary psychology as our understanding of a motivation of behavior. But with Ayers taking that out, he, he adopted a very anthropological approach to behavior that human behavior is cultural behavior, that then it should only be explained in terms of cultural processes. And you didn't have to worry about the connection to biology. But Veblen's theory of behavior was basically, you know, people live and they encounter problems. They solve them in strategies at work. They retain, they become, they repeat them. They become habits. They become habits of thought. They share them. And then from out of those habits of thought come institutions. Veblen doesn't say much about that, but if you read his other work, the implication is that this process of sharing these individual habits of thought in the, on their way to becoming social habits of thought is either through cultural diffusion or emulation. And I, I was sitting down thinking about that in terms of evolution. And if, if that was the process by which human beings were developing institutions, we'd still be waiting. 
you know, it's too slow. And, and so something else evolutionarily must be going on to, to fill that gap between individual habits of thought and then the social habits of thought or institutions that that one talked about. Ayers just eliminated the problem by skipping over the individual aspect of it, and many people were satisfied with that. But the only person who really took it on was Jeff Hodgson and uh, Thorns Knudsen in the book uh, Darwin's Conjecture. And they proposed a solution in there, and they basically made up two categories, replicators and something else is the mechanism in there. And that was largely rejected and passed over and people who read it ignored it. But I noticed something in that experience. And that is um, in all science, we sometimes run into a gap like that, you know, and we can't fill it. So we, we take a word and we stick it in there and it serves as a placeholder for that explanation. And I use the notion that I use with my students that I go into class and the lights are on and I say, look, that switch over on the wall, that's a gate. And on the other side of it are a bunch of little blue fairies and you flip that switch up and they fly up there into that light bulb and they wiggle and that causes light. And when you close it, they run out the gate again and it stops. And they all have a good laugh on that. I said, yeah, that's a good thing to laugh about. Um, up until 1897. And then we changed the name of blue fairies to electrons. And all of a sudden it's science, right? But all we did was put in a word because an eight, you know, JJ Thompson didn't know what an electron was. It was whatever it was that had that negative charge. And even today, we don't really know what, we know a lot of characteristics about electrons. We know a whole lot more, but we don't know what an electron is, you know? So, we, we put these placeholders in those gaps and then we just keep working at them. So I, I was interested in that, that particular gap in institutional economics. And then of course, in the lecture, I look at other gaps that there, there are in economics, most of which come from the fact that you have to sort of parse the portion of the world you're gonna look at it. But as Plato, he said, you know, you carve, and, and that's what we do in the sciences, all the sciences. And we try and understand a piece, but then you have to put it back in. You have to fill that gap. You have to reconnect it to reality. And um, sometimes we engage in a little bit of what, what Jacob Bronowski called leap of imagination. And I sometimes refer to as magical thinking, just to fill in the gap. We, we sit down and we try and think what could happen. I think Hodgson and Nudson, to their credit, did that. I haven't really thought through what I think about their solution, but I think it was a step in the right direction. And so the longer, I I want a series of papers on how that happens in other approaches to economics. But the, the Denver thing was sort of like the bird's eye view. Now I have to do the hard work. And some of them are obviously, as I said in the paper, to town among, you know, I mean, nobody really believes it the auctioneer is the solution to general equilibrium. They didn't at the time. In uh, Austrian economics, we have spontaneous order, you know, all these things. Nobody has written very much about where that's, you know, what's the mechanism? Spontaneous order and complexity economics. We have emergence. They're magic words. They're filling in the gap. We know there's something there. 
it sort of identifies a place for us to work. But, you know, we can't pretend it's done. That's the hard work. Yeah. I like that term, magical thinking. Did you did you coin that yourself or is that borrowed oh. from somewhere? I didn't consciously borrow it, but it strikes me as something that somebody else thought of right. for me. Um, and it's sort of based on the notion uh, that Duggar works with a lot on enabling myths as well. You know, there's a, there's certain ways in which we explain things to ourselves that are outside the kind of um, highly critical um, analysis we do scientifically, but gives us some comfort that we're speaking about the right. world. Yeah. Well, it actually reminds me of Warren Samuels and, you know, some of the work he did in erasing the invisible hand. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, very much so. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think we have one last question, sir, if you want to go ahead on that about the next generation. Yes. So what do you think the next generation of institutional economists should be thinking about and what challenges should we be focusing on? I think it's a big question. Ne yeah. <laughs> neoliberal social constructs have to be addressed in the, in the near term. That has to be opposed. It has to be analyzed. It has to be revealed. That's a tremendous amount of work. And a lot of people have done a lot of good work, but there's also a lot of superficial understanding of it. That, so that, that's really important. Uh, income distribution looks like it's going to be an incredible problem going forward on a scale that we probably haven't seen since the Gilded Age. Th those would be the two ones. And of course, you know, the elimination of invidious distinctions. You know, I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of emphasis on race. We've seen a lot on gender but there are others, and it seems to me that human beings have an infinite capacity to create new ones. You know, so next it'll be eye color. Who knows? We'll find something. One of the things I think is important is, is to really focus on the issue of power, uh, how, it, how it develops, where it comes from. Because I think often individuals exercise power, and then they make up the excuse for using it. You know, it's like, okay, I'm exploiting you, but now I better come up with a rationalization. And then, you know, we get these social constructs as the rationalization and you get rid of that. But if you don't get rid of the power that it supports, then they'll come up with another way. You know? Right. Yeah. We're very creative at being not very nice to one another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, this has been great. Really, thank you, Bill. Thanks for joining the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. This is season one, episode three with Bill Waller. Thank you.